Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Sweet Hampstead and its Associations. Published in 1900, and written by Caroline A. White. It looks at the town of Hampstead in its earlier days, as well as the surrounding townships. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thank you to everybody who left a review for me this week in their podcast app. Thank you to Liam J for your lovely review on CastBox. Thank you to Alias VV for your kind words on iTunes. For everyone who reached out to say hello on Instagram, It was lovely to hear from you. As always, thank you to the Patreons and Anchor sponsors that continue to support the podcast. If you do appreciate the podcast, a lovely way to say thank you is to leave a five-star review in the iTunes or your podcast app. Even one sentence really helps out. It would be awesome if you were able to share the podcast with someone you know who may also need to get a good night's rest. If you would like to say hello to me, you can always reach out 
and send a message at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Sweet Hampstead and its associations. Introductory chapter. To the inhabitants of London and its suburbs, a history of Hampstead and the Heath may seem wholly unnecessary. What London lad who has not fished in and skated on its ponds, played truant in its subrural fields and lanes, gone bird-nesting in its woods, or spent delightful, orthodox half-holidays upon the heath. As for the free brotherhood of the lanes and alleys, before the plague of board schools afflicted them, or the board of works stood sponsor for the preservation of the heath, what hand's breadth of its hundreds of acres was there, that they did not know and continued to renew acquaintance with on every recurrence of the high festivals of Easter and with Suntide. But is it not of Abbey Hampstead that I am about to write, but of that older Hampstead that the materials for the history of which lie scattered through many books not often read, and in the correspondence of dead men and women. License and Park are not for general readers, and such works as William Howitt's Northern Heights and Bain's Records of Hampstead are not companionable volumes, yet I know of no immediate work between them and mere guidebooks. Hence, it has occurred to me that I might fill a vacant place in the literature of Sweet Hampstead and give to others, without the toil, the pleasure I have had in recalling forgotten incidents connected with it and memories of some of the celebrated men and women who, from the days of Queen Anne till our own, have added to the intrinsic delights of the place the charm of their association with it. When the idea of undertaking this labour of love occurred to me, the window near which I loved to write commanded a last fragmentary view of Gospel Oak Fields, which divided Hampstead from the parish of St. Pacras. These fields were even then early in the 60s, in the hands of speculative builders. But a few green hedges, a group of elms, a pollard oak or two, scions perhaps, of the traditionary one that for centuries had given its name to these now obliterated Prata et Pasturus remains. Ten years previously, the hollow trunk of a very aged tree was still standing and was locally said to be the remains of the original gospel oak, 
one of the many so-called in various counties of England from the use made of them by the preaching friars who under their shade were wont to read and explain the scriptures to the people. It was at that time and for years afterwards used as a boundary tree when once in three years the clergymen, parochial authorities and charity children perambulated the boundaries of the parish of St. Pacras, of which it was the terminus in this direction. Where Fleet Road is now, the shallow remnant of the once silvery fleet, as Crosby calls it, in his additional notes, written only a few years before the period I am writing of, meandered, irrigating those charming meadows which reach on either side of Kentish Town. It was only a little later than this date that I first knew these meadows and the dried channel of the winding stream he speaks of the course of which might be traced by the decaying alders and old windows that fringed it through gospel oak fields, at the end of which it had subsided in a ditch. It had remained navigable as far as Holborn Bridge till Henry the Seventh's time, from which period the less we save its city life the better. It had been dredged and scoured to no purpose, but after the great fire, much of the debris being thrown into it, it became in Charles II's reign an abomination. In Anne's time, Gay gives us a sufficiently disagreeable description of the desecrated river, and Pope in the Junciad asserts it. It was the creek that in modern times was called Fleet Ditch. It had its entrance immediately below Bridewall, Blackfriars being to the east of it and reached as far as Holborn Bridge, at the foot of Holborn Hill. Here it received the Little River Fleet, Turnmill Brook, and the rivulet known as the Old Bourne. The latter rose at Holborn Bars, removed not many years ago, and gave its name to Holborn. It lost itself, as had been said, in the fleet at Holborn Bridge. In 1737, Fleet Ditch was covered over, and the space gained was occupied by Fleet Market. Nearly a hundred years later, in 1829, this was removed, and Farringdon Street now occupies its site. Upon the right, going towards Holborn, stood the fleet prison for debtors, founded in the first year of Richard I. I remember its removal in 1845, and long before I saw it, 
hearing my mother tell of the sad feelings with which she had often passed it in her youth, by reason of the melancholy implorations of certain of the prisoners, wretched-looking beings who let down bags from the windows and cried to the passers-by, Please remember the poor debtors. One penny loaf per day was the jail allowance, and those who had not friends to supply them with food to supplement this doll literally starved to death. This was the scene of the fleet marriages. Pennant tells how in his youth he had often been tempted by the question, Sir, will you please walk in and be married? And he tells us that a painted sign of a male and female, hands conjoined, with the inscription, Marriages performed here, was hung on the walls of the building. A dirty fellow invited you in, and the parson, a squalid, profligate figure, clad in a tattered plaid nightgown, with a fiery face, stood just within, ready to couple you for a dram of gin or roll of tobacco. This state of things was not put an end till 1753, but the fleet prison has a history of its own, and lies outside the Hampstead story of the river. To return to the water supply, the ponds in the valley between the sister hills, as Thompson calls the acclivities of Hampstead and Highgate, have often proved dangerous to children and others from the sudden shelving of their banks. In my time it crept, a sluggish stream, a mere ditch in dry weather, but after copious rain it rose suddenly, brimming to its margin, to disappear at the end of Angler's Lane by a subterranean channel under part of Kentish Town, where it once more came to light as a narrow runlet in the main road that was easily stepped over. There were persons then living who remembered this portion of the river, a limpid stream following by the west side of Kentish Town towards King's Cross, for it is not much more than half a century since it was arched over and built upon. The fields through which it passed showed signs of its meanderings, and were still lovely with trees that had figured in many an artist's sketchbook, and had thence imparted the refreshments of their pictured beauty to many a home. The footpath through these meadows from the Kentish town followed the curve of an old rivulet scarcely dry in places, the whole course of which was traceable 
in the wavering line of aged willows, hollow and splintered, but putting forth hoar-green branches above the exhausted stream that had once fed their roots. This was Mary Shelley's lovely walk from Kentish Town through the fields with their fine old elms and rivulets and older trees and a view to the north of the wooded heights of Highgate. In her time, Carlton Road and the region thereabouts were all meadows. This path led over the easiest of styles through a little lane between hedges of hawthorn and elder by an old nursery garden and cottage where strawberries and cream were to be had in the season and a cup of tea at all times and so the south end or such portion of it was not already changed to railway uses. The houses here were of a humbler description than those in the flask walk, but there were sufficient indications in little garden borders, in roses trained about the doors, in vines wholly untrained, running to an excess of leafiness over walls and roofs, in a group of straw bee hives, sheltered in a corner to show how pretty and rustic the place had once been. There was the downtrodden, worn-out green with its white palings and rickety turnstile, in itself a protest to the farther use of it, and lime trees out of all proportion to the small houses you saw between them, large-limbed and flourishing. An ascending row of houses to the right, on what is now South Hill Park, occupied the levelled slopes, the summits of which, when I first knew the lovely neighbourhood, afforded charming views, and not the least charming that of the eastern outskirts of Hampstead, sweeping up amidst a profusion of foliage towards the high ground about Squire's Mount, with a foreground of water and groups of trees studding the undulating surface, the fields on the east bounded by the remarkable mound which now bears the name of Parliament Hill. Ainsworth has made it memorable as the scene whence some of the conspirators of the gunpowder plot watched for the explosion of the Houses of Parliament at the hands of Guy Faux. Park, who refers to Stukeley's itinerary on various occasions, takes no notice of this eminence. Mr. Lloyd, in his published lecture on Cane Wood, tells us that when Mr. Bills purchased the estate of Sir James Harrington, amongst the properties belonging to it was a windmill, which occupied the fine site of the summit of Parliament Hill, 
where the trench formed by the removal of its foundations is still to be traced. It was doubtless the Manor Mill. At one time it was presumed that, like the mound in the field to the right of the path to Highgate, which Lord Mansfield caused to be enclosed and planted with Scotch firs, it was tumulus. In support of this idea, there is a tradition of Saxon times, still extent of this neighbourhood. Was it not about the skirts of Highgate that Alfred encamped with his troops to protect the citizens of London whilst they gathered in the harvest from the surrounding fields, from Hastings of the Ivory Horn, who lay with his Danish army beside the Lee, ready to pillage them of their summer fruits. And might not some great battle have been fought, and have resulted in the raising of this mound, alas for romance, when a few summers ago a child at play in its neighbourhood unearthed the hidden treasure of some threatened home, buried for safety's sake in troublesome times, or the booty of some thief whose after-career interfered with his return for it, a search into the interior of the mound, under the direction of the county council, dispelled the theories of the antiquaries and the dreams of romanticists. But whatever its origin, the mound adds materially to the visual enjoyment of the visitor, and the sight of London from its height, especially at the early dawn of a clear summer's day, is said to be worth at midnight pilgrimage to obtain. The air blows over its summit most sweetly, especially in June, blending the scent of lime blossoms from the silver villages with the aroma of the hayfields and hedgerows. Where the honeysuckle and wild rose bloom unwarranted, Facing round, we have Highgate Hill in view, with wide modern houses showing here and there, and others roof-high in the foliage of surrounding trees. Of the ancient hamlet, we see only a ridge of red-tiled roofs showing in the neighbourhood of the church. To the north, where the grounds of cane wood come sweeping down to the brewing ponds, on which the swans float double, swan and shadow. The landscape widens into one of rare beauty, park-like beyond the park, in its alternations of lawny slope and little dells and groups of trees. It looks like a portion of the demence, and not the least picturesque and lovely part of it. To the west, our vision closes with the spire of St John's Church, 
and the town of Hampstead stretching down a peninsula of houses in a sea of verdure, terminating in the fast narrowing strip of green fields between Kentish Town. I especially remember a bit of landscape in which the Red Viaduct in Sir Marion Wilson's demence shows to much advantage on the grassy foreground between the wooded undulations of the park. It is still pretty, but with a difference. Then a footway crossing the heath led through an old grey, weather-beaten gate to a shady path, with a plantation of young trees on one side, and a hedgerow redolent in summer, of wild rose and may, dividing it from a meadow on the other. The remains of a long disused tile kiln stood on the edge of the field, the red earth of which showed its fitness for such manufacture. This path led through upland fields to Highgate and was a charming one beloved by painter and poet. The last time I saw it, the beauty was devastated, and the meadow changed into a brick field, with a view to its conversion into a site for building on. But I am forgetting, in my remembrances of the charming suburb, that from the earliest birth of a taste for natural beauty, Hampstead must have had a special interest for the inhabitants of London. Beautiful as were the whole range of gently swelling hills forming the background of the city, and long subsequent to Tudor times covered with dense woods, which encroached on the north and east, even to its gates, and came down on the west as far as Tyburn, Hampstead Hill, from its altitude, and the fact, as someone has written, that it closed the gates of view in that direction, must have had an interest beyond the others. Bain's claims for Hampstead that it was a village before 1086. In other words, that the five manses, or homes to the villainy and bordery, on the original clearing, which are mentioned as existing when Doomsday Book was compiled, constituted a village. In 1410, at the same time of the assignment of Hampstead, together with Hendon, to Henry Lord Scrope of Marsham, for the maintenance of his servants and horses, he being then attending Parliament on the King's service. It is included with Hendon, and styled a town, the towns of Hampstead and Hendon. But in the reign of Henry VIII, it is again called a village, 
by which designation it continued to be called even in our own times, long after it had outgrown the dimensions of one, just as a beloved child, when grown up, retains the pet name given to it in its infancy. The truly Hampstead continues to be best loved of all by city suburbs. A stone in the north aisle of the old church, dated 1658, recorded that John Baxter Gent had made it incumbent on the owners of a house in Hampstead Street, where Mr. Netmaker dwelleth, no other street apparently existed to make a prefix necessary to pay the sum of three pounds yearly to the poor of the parish. Someone of importance, no doubt, occupied the moated mansion and Dempson of Cainwood, and there are records of other great men and rich city merchants resident in the upland hamlet. A peep at the parish register, the earliest date in which is 1560, affords us a clue to the growth of the population. After the great plague, change of air in the summer season became an article of faith with the inhabitants of London and an annual sojourn of some weeks in the country or at the seaside, an established custom with all who could afford it, a custom which resulted on the part of the wealthy merchants and citizens in the hire or purchase of a country retreat in one or other of the suburbs. Hampstead, towards the end of the Commonwealth, combined the advantages of air and hill and well and school and these favourable circumstances added to its easy distance from London recommended it to the city fathers and mothers and made it of all the rural villages in the neighbourhood of town the most popular. Though its high-pitched situation precluded at that period, and for a long time after, such an increase of buildings as lower situations where afflicted wealth, its position, fine air and beautiful prospects, made it much sought and in the time of the Stuarts, many notable persons in connection with the court had houses here. Sir Henry Vane built his fine mansion on what was then called Hampstead Hill, and J. Bills Esquire, son of the printer to his majesty, resided at Cayen Wood, while my Lord Wotton had his country house at Balsize. After the restoration, we find Sir Geoffrey Palmer, Attorney General, residing at Hampstead, where he died, May 1, 1670. And though Pepys does not mention it, Sir George Downing, 
secretary to the treasury, who so often appears in the diary and whom Pepys stigmatizes as a cider, with old times and changes, resided here, and had his house broken into and robbed in 1685. From the St. James's Gazette, published by authority, I find that, amongst other articles of which the thieves deprived Sir George, were the following items. A large agate about the bigness of a crown piece, with Cupid and Venus and Vulcan engraved on it. A blue sapphire seal, set in gold, enameled with an old man and woman's head engraved on it. A pomander set in gold, a locket with fourteen diamonds, and a crystal in the middle, engraved with two cupids, holding a heart over a cipher. This catalogue appeals to the sympathies of every lover and delightful bric-a-brac, but one fears the advertisement of them failed to recover the charming items, some of which may even yet find their way to one of the table cases in South Kensington. Every year appears to have added to the flavour of Hampstead as a summer resort, a fact that was not lost upon the inhabitants, who were not slow to realise the benefit of these annual incursions. Copyholds were readily procurable, and Hampstead was soon dotted about in various directions with weather-boarded or brick dwellings, so that by the end of the 17th century, twelve houses had risen upon the demence, two upon the freeholds, and 257 upon the copyholds. Besides cottages, barns, brew houses, etc., together with a dancing room, shops, and other tenements in connection with the wells. In the first year of the present century, we find that Hampstead possessed 691 houses, which in 1811 had increased to 842 with 5,443 inhabitants and 17 houses building, and 45 unlet. In 1815, when Breton revisited it, he tells us that Hampstead, from a beautiful rural village, had become a town, with hundreds of mean houses, disposed in narrow courts, squares and alleys, many of them uninhabited. Yet the rate of building mentioned was insignificant compared with its after-progress. In 1861, the inhabited houses had increased to 4,340, with 385 uninhabited dwellings, and 169 more in course of building, 
while the population of the whole parish amounted to a total of 32,271, a very remarkable feature in the succeeding census of Hampstead, 1871 being the preponderance of female inhabitants who exceeded by 711 the entire population of the previous census in 1861. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you have enjoyed listening to the book as you've slowly fallen asleep. In the meantime, while you're dozing off, I'll be working on bringing you a new episode very soon. Good night.